In this episode, Eric Gordon goes through his life in a chronological order. He talks about a lot of different things that he's done and the path that he's taken. The journey hasn't always went as he thought it would. Uh, he's definitely had some struggles along the way. He's had to change directions. Uh, but it's a great scene setter into the later part of the conversation that him and I have, where he talks about being a police officer during these trying times and some of the difficulties that have come through that, but then also in some of his businesses and how he's had to change and he's had to make very hard decisions, but he's always put his family first. You're going to enjoy this episode, so please sit back and listen to Always in Pursuit podcast. Well, hello, everybody. This is uh, Mike Burke, and this is Always in Pursuit podcast. Today's episode, we have somebody that is a hero amongst men, somebody that I've looked up to for a very long time, but he's also somebody that has multiple irons in the fire. Officer in the Army, an airborne ranger, police officer, skydiver, CrossFit gym owner, welder. I'm going to start saying maybe interior designer it looks like you're starting to design some stuff inside uh he does all kinds of things and he's also a, a rep for softly one of the people that i've definitely looked up to for a long time i've known eric probably gosh we've known each other probably 15 years now uh we've had run-ins throughout kind of our time um, so i'm excited about this podcast we're going to talk about a lot of different things and how eric's always in pursuit looking for opportunities and some lessons he's learned, things that he's done along the way. So, Eric, I'll turn it over to you if you want to kind of introduce you to yourself to the audience. Yeah, so uh, my name's Eric Gordon, uh, born and raised in Washington State. Kind of ended up going to college by default. I actually had a Navy contract out of high school. I didn't know that. Listening. Yeah, so I was going uh, to listen to the Navy, wanted to be a SEAL. Then I ended up tearing my ACL my senior year in high school. And so I got told, hey, you need to wait a year, get a medical waiver, and then you can reapply for the military at that point. I had thought nothing about college or anything after high school except for the military, so I had zero plan. Pretty good plan on my part. So I applied to the only college that would take me, which was Central Washington University. Two years into it, in the typical college thing, man, I drank my way out of college. My grades sucked. Academic probation. Kind of in a bad spot in my life, and it's near and dear to my heart. Kind of my mentor in my life, kind of turned my life around. Um, he was a long time regimental dude. He was in first bat for quite a while, second bat for a long time, ended up going to CAG for a number of years. And then his last two years when he left the unit to come back, he was ROTC instructor. Today, man, you ever thought about the army? I said, well, yeah, you know, I've thought about the military, can't do it, tore my ACL, blah, blah. And uh, I'm not in college anymore. And so it was kind of one of those deals where he was like, hey, man, if I get you back into school, would you consider doing ROTC? And kind of the, you know, the former jail or military kind of route. And <laughs> so I said, sure, man, I'm interested. You can guarantee me that I can go do the infantry. And he's like, well, you said you want to be a SEAL. What about the Rangers? And honestly, man, I didn't know anything about the Rangers. I, as stupid as it sounds, like grew up looking at all the SEAL movies and books. So I looked a little bit into it and I said, hey, man, if you can, you can get me hooked up and I can have an opportunity to try out for that, then I'm, I'm in. And so he worked his deal with the dean of the school, got me back into school. 
Uh, my grades went from being in the trash to being almost straight A for my last two years. So as you know, Mike, I got a little bit of catch up to do on the ROTC front. So I ended up going to uh, real basic training in my summer. So I went to Fort Knox for the eight-week basic training versus the advanced camp and the other stuff ROTC does. Came back from that, did my senior year in college. Still, I had to make up a couple other things. I had to go to the ROTC advanced camp. I went to airborne school, and then I was waiting on a branch assignment. Pine, they weren't offering infantry branch assignments to very few people just because they needed to fill the wants and needs of the Army and other areas. Um, they said if you finish in the top 10% at advanced camp, you could basically select your branch assignment. Came out honor grad for that uh, top PT. And so I got to choose my branch assignments. I chose infantry, but then I had to wait. Finished college, recently married to my wife, Carrie. Living at home with my parents, pretty awesome. So I got a job at a local auto parts store, working at an auto parts store until I got my branch assignment. And then uh, we moved down to Fort Benning. I went through IOBC, uh, mech leader school, because I was assigned initially to uh, 3rd Infantry Division. To Ranger School after a mech leader's course, uh, finished Ranger School, went to 3rd ID, and then uh, got my first OER, which is what you needed to apply to the Ranger Regiment. I basically became a thorn in the side of uh, regiment, I would call, being at Benning, as you know. Yeah, right absolutely. There, regimental headquarters. And so I would call literally weekly, every Monday I would call and ask if they had any openings coming up for, it was a rope at the time instead of rasp. And I think they just got tired of hearing from me. And so they said, hey man, we've got a, a rope course coming up. It starts in a week. Uh, there's one slot, somebody dropped out. If you want it, it's yours. Funny enough, I've also been pursuing Pathfinder school. And so <laughs> one of those things, you're at Benning, so you have access to all those schools. So Pathfinder was one of the ones I was really interested in. So I called my buddy, Al Buford, the mentor of mine said, hey, man, what do, you, what do you think? And he goes, man, if you have an opportunity to go to rope, take rope. Pathfinder yeah, absolutely. school. He goes, you could go to Pathfinder, hurt on a jump, you get hurt in school, and then your shots are rope and your timeline, as you know, closes up. You know, it's kind of a once in a lifetime thing. So I ended up going to rope, came down with a really bad case of the flu when I was there. Found out when I was at rope that I do not have the pedigree that most have going to rope. No combat experience. I had very yeah. minimal time as a platoon leader. As you know, the GWAT had just begun. So most dudes going to rope were senior lieutenants that have already been a platoon leader in combat. Yeah. yeah, absolutely. Which I didn't have. I didn't have a West Point background. I didn't have a dad that was a general. I didn't have friends at the upper echelon. So I was kind of the, the black sheep, if you will. Fortunate for me. Uh, there was a guy there that was actually going to second range at the time to fill a company commander position. He was a former enlisted dude in regiment, kind of pulled me under his wing and said, man, just keep your head down and do what you got to do. Don't quit. And uh, it might work out for you. So that's what I did, man. I got the flu and being sick the entire time, but I didn't quit. Just throwing up, feeling like crap the entire time. I'd go home every night and tell my wife that, hey, man, I, I don't know if it's going to work, man. The, these other guys are a lot better suited for this than I am. They have the pedigree I don't. Also, I was looking at the fact that Carrie was pregnant, and I was looking at an 18-month deployment with 3rd ID, so I was going to miss the first 18 months of my son's life. So it was kind of a put-up-or-shut-up moment in my life where I was like, well, give it 110%. If it doesn't happen, then it doesn't happen for a reason, and we'll just uh, leave it all in the field. And yeah. I ended up getting selected, man. It was uh, it was kind of like a dream come true, to be honest with you, man. That was, uh, I joined the Army with wanting to go to the Ranger Regiment. That was a life goal of mine. Um, you talk about the premier direct action unit in the world, and I was now part of that. It was uh, it was kind of surreal, to be honest with you. Me, I have very minimal education. I don't consider myself anything special by any means of the imagination. I'm, I'm fucking average at best. 
but the thing is I'm, I'm persistent and I'm, I don't quit. Do you feel that you, you've kind of become attuned because of the formative years, you know, and dropping out of college and all the, the fighting that you kind of had to do that you're used to fighting as an undergod? Yeah, I would think so. I mean, yes and no. The thing about the military that I found out is that persistence is key. Yeah. And you continue to show up, do the right thing when people aren't looking. You just kind of drive forward at the lower levels, right? And then as you start to move through the ranks, you start to understand that there is some political aspects to it. There is friendships build, you know, relationships and those things build professional bridges for you. I've never been good at that game. I wanted to go to the Ranger Regiment, enjoy being in the Ranger Regiment. That was my only goal. And that was the top of the, I mean, that, that was the top of the food chain for me. I had no aspirations beyond that. I was just belated to be part of that community. And so when I got there, man, I, again, I'm a cherry lieutenant with no combat experience going yeah. to a premier direct action combat unit that has privates that have multiple deployments, 18, 19 year old kids that have 10 times the combat experience that I could ever make up in my head. What the hell am I going to teach them? And if I remember right, who was your platoon sergeant when you, cause you got to one Bravo, I believe, right? Jeff Jackson. Jeff Jackson, a heck of a lot of experience. But then you also took over for a PL, had more combat experience than the rest of the battalion combined. A former CAG operator that was enlisted and then uh, decided to go to OCS. You want to talk about, you know, I know people say, oh, you got big shoes to fill. I don't necessarily always like that. But wow, that was a, a big role to step into after an individual like that. The, the plus side of that was, though, is that taking over for a guy like that, he had already put things in motion Yeah, for me to take over for him. He was, I had squad leaders that were so squared away and I was very, very fortunate. I had, um, uh, I don't know if you remember Nick Rowe. Yeah, 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 absolutely. And so Nick was one of my squad leaders. He pulled me aside day one, man. He said, hey man, your job is just to shut up and listen until you get a couple rotations under your belt. We will take care of the rest for you. I was like, cool, man. That sounds pretty easy. I was very fortunate, man. I had guys like Blaine Gravens, Nick Rowe, Leroy Petrie. I mean, I had some really good dudes in my platoon. I built really good friendships with all those guys, and they did. They took care of me. Very, very fortunate. Man, you go back and yeah, I went to a wedding for a couple of these guys a few months ago, and the, the message they kept saying was, man, like you didn't come with an agenda, and I didn't. For good or for bad, most officers you get, they go to regiment. It is a, if you do well in regiment, your, your time, your, your setup, you know, right. and you can pick your duty assignment. You can pick your specialty assignments. Um, I didn't have an agenda, man. That was the top of food chain for me. I had no aspirations beyond that. I just wanted to enjoy every minute of being there and around people like you and everybody else that I got to meet. I mean, you're talking about three-time volunteers. You volunteer for the military, you volunteer for airborne school, and you volunteer with a ranger regiment. Any of those dudes can leave at any point in their career and walk away. I'm done and leave but they're all there because they want to be there. And additionally, the standards in that unit, the standards are the standards. You get handed a book the day you get there, right? And yep, in that book, book is the regimental standards. And you violate any of those standards, regardless of rank or time and position or anything, you're gone. Man, that's awesome. Every day is a selection. And that's when it kind of sunk in that every day you're being evaluated and yeah, every, every person there is being evaluated. Standards are what keep that unit the way it is. Without standards, you don't have anything, no baseline. And then if those standards start to slide, then the baseline starts to slide and your performance slides with it. I think it's even a little bit more difficult for uh, officers as well, because you know that there's a bench worth of lieutenants working up in the S3 shop or the S4 shop, which are the kind of staff components that help run the battalion. 
waiting for a job. They're waiting for a position. Not only do they know that, you know that, but everybody else knows that. So if you don't, you know, perform quickly, do the job correctly, there's a replacement waiting in the wing just right down the hallway uh, to take over for you. Well, beyond that, get your foot in the door just to get you to set the foot through the door. I mean, IOBC at the time was roughly commissioned about 4,000 infantry lieutenants a year. Right. So of that, you're you're competing amongst your peers of 4,000 for at the time before there's more battalions and stuff like that. Now there was 27 spots for infantry lieutenants in the Ranger Regiment as a whole. And mm. so you're competing for 27 slots out of 4,000 annual dudes that are being commissioned to go for that branch assignment. It's usually the top 1% of PLs within a battalion that actually get selected and are able to serve within the Ranger Regiment. Because the different thing about Ranger Regiment for everybody that doesn't understand is you have to do a position successfully in the conventional army before you can go to Ranger Regiment and serve. So and it's actually, I'm sorry, it's not even successful. You have to outshine all of your peers because you have to get kind of that OER, but then you also have to get that recommendation from the battalion commander and the troop commander recommend you for Ranger Regiment. No, I think that's awesome. So was your plan always to do one term? Had you not really kind of thought it through honestly man um no my my plan going into it was to make the military career. okay um, it always wanted to serve since i was a young child um, my dad was in the air force my grandpa was in the navy so the military kind of runs in our family i loved putting the uniform on every day I was, I was proud to be in the military i was proud to for what i did getting out was one of the greatest regrets of my life but it's kind of twofold i came back from my second deployment i'd already looked at going to sf selection at the time um, when my time in battalion ran out because his officers is all timeline based. So I had my SF packet in. I had a selection date. One of my deployments, I got to work with first group pretty closely. And so I talked to the battalion commander at first group, hooked up a position to be able to come back to first group had I done well at the selection and Q course and everything else. Came home from my second deployment, came back to my house, and it was pretty early in the morning. My wife brought, picked me up. My mother was at my house with my son. I come home. My son comes running down the hall, sees me, doesn't know who the hell I am runs away crying. It was at that point when I was like, my job is costing me the relationship with my son and my family. Something's got to give. And yep. for me, my personal career goals weren't worth my family life. That is so tough and people don't realize. And I think it still exists within the military. But from about that 2002 to 2011 timeframe for military folks, especially Ranger Regiment or Special Operations folks, because it wasn't a matter of if we're getting deployed, it was happening. Every six months we were getting deployed. And then like you were a part of, we had surges that we did in between, you know, some were I think one was 25 days, some were in the XX of 60 days that we did, and Conventional Army did those as well. It was tough, and I remember the exact same thing. Uh, 2009, I had the same conversation. I was looking at my kids, two sons at the time. I really didn't know them. My oldest son been through, at that point, I want to say nine deployments. I could be wrong. It could have been less or more. I can't quite remember. And that's where I made the decision that I needed to do something. Now, I did not make the decision to get out. I was in a little bit of a different situation than you were, but the decision to go do ROTC for two and a half years uh, so that I could get a little bit of a break. Also, it's an important job, but then also at the same time, get some makeup for lost time with my children and it, because it is incredibly, incredibly tough. And deployments are hard enough. They get harder when your kids ask you, please don't leave, daddy. 
it is a whole nother realm where you come back and they don't even want to give you the time of day because they're like, you're never around anyway, man. What do, what do I really need you for? Uh, it's tough. It's tough. So you made the decision and then that's when you went over to Renton PD, correct? Correct. I had no idea what I want to do, man. Like I said, I, I always thought the military would be my life. And um, as stupid as it sounds, like I used to be addicted to watching cops. <laughs> uh, Carrie asked me one night, like, what do, you, what do you want to do if you're going to get out? I said, well, I don't know. Well, we were watching cops. I was like, I don't know. It looks kind of cool. So that looks pretty fun. Maybe I'll go do that. Right. So that's when I kind of pursued the law enforcement thing. Battalion actually hooked me up pretty good, man. They, they could have sent me down the road. Timeline was up. I was fortunate. I got a lot more PL time than most do because they knew that I wasn't going to leave and go to the career course and come back. So timeline wasn't really an issue for me. So they moved me over to the S5 shop to allow me some time to find another job, which was really cool because I didn't have to move my family again. They were really, really cool about that. They let me stay in the S5 shop. I pursued the law enforcement thing, started the testing process, which is um, quite lengthy for law enforcement. Yes, it is. um, So I ended up actually walking out of battalion on a Friday, starting the police academy on a Monday. Oh man. Well, yeah. actually that's, that's good in some ways because you didn't have to worry about a paycheck. <laughs> Hindsight being what it is, man. I, I wish I wouldn't have done that. I wish I would have taken um, some block leave and start to assimilate myself with civilian culture again. Okay, um, that's fair. I went from a unit where you have the highest standards around and standards are standards. And then I went to the police Academy where I don't know if there really are any, it's, um, in the military, if you're 15 minutes early, you're late. If you have yeah. the right, you get to be there early with the right gear at the right time. With the police academy, it was kind of um, a moving target. And so it was it was a very tough for me to move from that environment to my new job career, where if you had the right gear, cool. If you're on time, okay, that's cool too. It was I had a really hard time, man. Uh, I made it about halfway through the academy and I said, fuck this. This is not for me. I need to get back in the military. I actually left uh-huh. the academy midday. So I couldn't do this shit anymore. I started making calls to go back in the military. And I got a call from one of my TAC instructors at the academy and says, man, you got to come back. You're going to be a great police officer. You're going to do great things. I said, man, I just can't do this. He goes, I get it. The transition's tough. I've been there. Um, stick it out. Things are different once you're out of the academy. Stuck it out. And here I am, you know, 14 years later. So you've had people that have kind of stepped in at pivotal times in your life and really provided you some great mentorship and some great guidance that have gotten sure, you back man. on track. That's yeah. huge. You know, a lot of people don't have that uh, kind of those guideposts, you know, reaching out and providing, you know, a hand or providing some guidance to people is something that we need to do more of. You never know when you're going to be calling somebody when you're, ex- that's the exact moment they need to hear from you and they need to talk to yeah. somebody. That's huge. So, all right. So you make it through the academy, you finish up the academy, you know, you're doing that and I'm sure you're crushing it. And then I, I want to say it was about 2010 when you and I ran back into each other. I was helped teaching an explosive entry course for, oh man, I can't, FET, yeah, FET, Forced Entry Tactical Training. And you tell me that you and Carrie are starting a gym, a CrossFit yep. gym. What what prompted that? How scared were you of doing that? Well, I don't know, man. I, I have a problem with diving head first into things. And so okay. it was um, it was one of those things. I, I My wife is, as you know, very into physical fitness. She yep. got her uh, bachelor's degree in exercise physiology. Or sorry, her bachelor's in nutrition. She started her master's program for exercise physiology. And then we ended up leaving for the military. We was training at a gym in Seattle. And we just moved to Maple Valley. There was no CrossFit gym in there. I kind of got introduced to CrossFit in the Ranger Regiment because they started the Ranger Athletic Warrior Program, which Greg Glassman helped design for the Ranger Regiment. 
And so I'd kind of seen that overseas. Crystal May and uh, Felino were doing the CrossFit thing overseas and were completely addicted to it. And (laughs) so I kind of got into it through those two guys and working out with them. And what what do you think about starting a gym? Let me back up. Another friend of mine was the sixth CrossFit affiliate to open uh, Rainier CrossFit. So Kurt Bowler opened up Rainier CrossFit. Yeah, and he was already at doing that and being a cop at the same time. And we talked it over. My wife said, yeah, man, I'm on board if you're on board. And um, we talked to Kurt just to ensure we weren't infringing on any business that may be involved with him in the area. He said, no, man, I'll help you with whatever you need. And so we just kind of dove in, man. We bought a computer, rented a space. Carrie started the programming, opened our doors. Things went pretty well, man. It exploded. I probably came in and started working out with you guys maybe Three or four weeks after you started, you actually opened the doors. Yeah, there was a, there was a core group. It was probably about 17, 20 people, maybe 30. I don't know, um, you know, kind of through the day. But at the end there, there was hundreds and hundreds of people yeah. that were that were members of that gym. And it was a huge family, a huge community, and people loved to be a part of it. It was, it was pretty amazing uh, to kind of see. And I always just applauded both of you for a couple different reasons. One, that you had a full-time, how well you guys worked together. And then you worked with other people. When you could, you would coach, mentor people, and you guys were constantly looking at new ways to kind of do things and keep it interesting for everybody. And in a lot of ways, I would say you guys were pioneers for what people thought as far as boxes becoming a family. You know, it used to just be fire breathers of working out, getting after it. And then what it slowly kind of became uh, was, you know, the family kind of aspect of the gym. Heck, my even my kids went to your uh kids CrossFit uh, class for a while. I don't remember how long, but they definitely did it for a while. It was always amazing. I I can't take credit for any of that. That is all Carrie. That is not me. As you know, working with a spouse, it can be problematic. And so a full-time job and I was working graveyard at the time and on call for SWAT and everything else. And so I would show up to do some coaching and then get called into work or whatever the case may be. And stepped aside, let Carrie do everything and helped out where I could. The business success is all on her, man. It's not me. I would show up and have some fun with my friends and <laughs> even go to work. And <laughs> she was left to do the rest of it. But man, she, she loves coaching and she's really, really good at it. She's super smart with that stuff. And yeah, she is. All of the stuff that that business did was because of her. It wasn't because of me. There's always support that works both sides of the fence. What's your guys' secret to that? Because we'll, we'll talk more about it. I think you guys work on things together, but then also at the same time, you have your own kind of branch efforts, you know, maintaining a marriage. Because, oh, by the way, you guys have two children and two Rottweilers. You know, yeah. you have a lot to manage. How do you, how, what's your secret? I think people could benefit from hearing that. My wife's my best friend. Friendships have ups, friendships have downs. And that's true. But the bottom line is my wife is my best friend and she supports me in anything I want to do. I support her in anything she wants to do. It, marriage, as you know, man, ain't easy. And no, it's not. especially in the military and the world we came from where your time is very minimal at home. So it's definitely a give and take, man. What we found was with the business specifically is we, we divvied up tasks that basically what you do for any military operation. You look at who your best people are for certain tasks. We just didn't interfere with each other's business. We would come together and ask questions on those things. But if it fell into a certain category that was mine, then I would handle it. If it fell in a certain category that was hers, she would handle it. Um, and then ultimately, whatever category it fell into, that person had the ultimate say. 
So definitely communication, but there's always a stakeholder. One person that owns that owns a stake, but definitely communication, understanding, and compromise on some levels. I think marriage sometimes is about compromise. You know, yep. sometimes it's just compromising. You might not always understand it. It might not be important to you, but it means a lot to the other person. And you just got to appreciate you sharing that. And then somewhere in there, you started a holster company, a Kydax holster company for concealed and unconcealed uh pistols. What prompted that? What opportunity kind of presented itself for that? I mean, as you know, you've known me for a long time, man. I like, I like working with my hands. I like doing different things. I like keep my mind busy. I just wasn't happy with the products I found at the time. Um, Obviously there's a lot better stuff out there now. I just wasn't happy. So I did some research on YouTube and figured out how to do it and started doing it myself. And friends started wanting to buy them and more people wanted a hold of them. And so I figured, well, I might as well make this an LLC, have some sort of legal protection if something happens with them. So I started an LLC, uh, got some insurance, talked to some attorneys, started going forward with it. It went a direction that I never anticipated it to or wanted it to. Ended up getting some retailers to start carrying them. I think by the time I, by the time I finally laid it down, I think there was in 17 different countries and had some pretty big names that were carrying my stuff. It got too big, to be honest with you, man. And I didn't know how to scale it. Coming home from work and working on holsters, getting up and working on holsters, going to work, coming home, working on holsters. My best friend ended up being part of the company as well. So he was helping me do that stuff. And it just became too much. One thing I had to give, man, it was either going to be leave law enforcement and do the holster thing full time or leave the holster thing and do law enforcement full time. Because I had no time left on the table for my family again. I laid the holster company down. Actually, I just gave it to my best friend and said, here, you continue to run it. And yeah, man, that was it. It just, it became too big too quick. I didn't know how to properly. So, you know, because you divested from that. And then you also, you and Carrie made the decision to uh, sell the the CrossFit, you know, drove those decisions. Why did you guys decide to kind of do that stuff? So I went into the gym thing with actually an end date. When we started, I I had an end date. Everything in fitness has a lifespan, whether that's Reebok step or whatever, there's everything has a lifespan where it's the new greatest thing to get somebody fit by summertime. Right. Um, (laughs) CrossFit CrossFit blew up, man. And it was huge. And so we, we came in early, it got bigger, got bigger, got bigger. And I remember when we first started, we need to have an end date, an exit date on this thing, grow it, build it, get rid of it and move on. We had anticipated on selling the gym during the CrossFit games because that's typically when the biggest hype for CrossFit is. It's all over ESPN and everything else. And so we ended up moving from Maple Valley and we were living in Buckley, which Carrie then was driving 40 minutes oh, each direction wow. to the gym. Yeah, to run on the, the 410. Gym. Holy crap. Yeah. Yeah. When we did that, it became pretty hard for her to, to balance my schedule, her schedule, the kids' schedule, everything else. We just decided, man, this is probably the year we should probably get rid of this. We had a, another friend of mine that was really, really into it, and he was a member of the gym and really wanted to take reins of it and had asked us a couple times about potentially buying in. He ended up buying in percent of it to kind of transition carry out of it um, with the goal of him taking over 100% of it a few years later. And so he ended up buying into it, kind of transitioned over to running more of the things and Kerry kind of doing the right seat ride thing, handing the reins off. A few years later, we just pulled the plug completely. It was time, man. We, uh, we had a lot of fun with it. It was really good, but it was just, it was time to move on. Yeah. So just kind of recognizing when those different things either become too much or they reach their shelf life, but not willing to compromise your family and quite frankly, you know, your sanity for them. 
Oh, that's right. huge, man. That's cool. I'm glad. I'm glad that we got to kind of follow up because I've, there's a couple of things I've always wanted to. Uh, it's unfortunate that we had to do it in a podcast, but re- yeah. regardless, I, well, I, at the same time, I think other people can benefit from that because sometimes people, you know, because you there was also a level of comfort that comes with both of those, even though they it sucked. You know, like you said, you're working day and night to make these holsters. The money, throughput, the satisfaction, the gratification that comes out of that, the gym became a comfort, became a family and everything else that sometimes people just hold on to long. That becomes their identity. That becomes all that they are. And it actually makes them a miserable person. I've been in that situation as well, where you're you're not happy with who you become because you just hold to you hold on to things way way too long. Eric, if we can, I'd like to kind of transition. And what I want to talk to you is is you know the thing that's been predominant in your life for the last decade and a half, and that's being a police officer and a member of the SWAT team. Pretty biased of your SWAT team. I'm a huge fan. Uh, yeah. Always, I've always thought they were a super great team that kind of works together and kind of comes together from outside agencies to to accomplish the same thing. But if you could, you know, I'd love for everybody to kind of hear what that means to you and uh, why it's why it's so important. And as you've kind of outlined in some of the other areas, it's been the priority. Other things have kind of shifted your priority, but very quickly you said, no, this is what I want to do and this is who I am. So I'm going to invest from those so I can focus back on what the, the priority is. In law enforcement, um, SWAT is not looked at as a really I guess, sought after specialty. Um, Mm -hmm. It's um, a lot of people have the misconception that most SWAT guys are prima donnas. They're self-absorbed, this, that, and the other. But uh, the thing I've found, and I've I've been with our team now for um, a little over 13 years. And so what I found was most of those guys and gals are there because they want the community. So very similar to CrossFit, very similar to the Ranger Regiment. You're surrounded again by volunteers. Anybody can leave the team at any point. Mm-hmm. Um, so they're there because they want to be there. And so in law enforcement, that's kind of unique in the sense that <clears throat> you can walk away from the special at any point. There's no timeline to it. Whereas if you're a narcotics officer or traffic or whatever, you, you have a timeline. So you get four or five years in that assignment, then you move on to something else. Um, SWAT is unique in the sense that you can be there really your entire career till you either you decide to leave or you get promoted out of that position. I, I like the community aspect of it. Um, I really like team. I like everybody on my team. It's a very progressive team, which is very similar again to the Ranger Regiment, a very progressive organization. Not this is how we've always done things. This is how we, you know, we're the greatest. It's about looking for ways to constantly improve. Um, I like the physical fitness aspect of it, that you have to be fit to be on the team. There's standards, firearm standards, physical fitness standards. And then just your attendance standards of being available for call-outs, being available for warrant service or whatever the case may be. There are standards, which I really appreciate. Leadership development is huge on our team. So oh, really? Developing, okay. Yeah. Um, we're really, really big on the decentralized leadership concept. And so meaning that, very, again, very similar to the Ranger Regiment, that any guy at any point can fill any, any billet. You're developing your junior leaders to basically replace you. You're, that's your job as a senior leader on the team is to re- train your replacement. So that when you step aside, there is no lapse in ability. Again, I learned it in the Ranger Regiment. You, you look around, you're constantly training dudes to replace the next dude. That's the fact of life, man. At some point, you're going to become too old or too broke to do the job, and somebody's got to fill your job. So I've been very, very fortunate. I've um, 13 years on the team. I've uh, been a team leader for 12 of those years. Been afforded some very good opportunities to teach for the state. Currently with the, the Washington State Tactical Officer Association. I'm the vice president for the association. And so we do all the training for the state SWAT certification. 
And so being surrounded by these people that are constantly coming through the door that want to be part of the community that are hungry to be there, it drives you to be better. I've never heard of a, you know, when talking about the the SWAT teams, I've never heard of leader professional development before. And it's something that we talk a lot about in the army and it's become one of my focus areas. Credit myself with a lot, but I, I see it as one of my strengths and I see it as probably one of the most important thing that we do in the military. And it's pretty interesting to hear you talk about that for the SWAT teams and how important that is, that everybody needs to be able to work in a, a multifaceted role. But also, you know, for people that just don't really understand how SWAT teams work, there's not very many full-time SWAT teams in the nation. Most of them have their regular duties as a police officer, be it a, you know, work in the beat, a sergeant, or even a detective. They not only need to be available to do the training uh, when it's prescribed by the SWAT teams when they need to do their training, but they also need to be available to answer a SWAT call whenever you got to do a high risk warrant or whatever it might be. I think that that's huge being able to do that because for whatever reason, people might not be available to answer the call. They could even be on vacation and they can't answer the call or they're doing something else uh, for their department and they can't show up. So everybody needs to be able to kind of fill in multiple different roles within that. And I think that's huge, but I've never heard anybody ever kind of talk about that within the SWAT team. So that's awesome, Eric. Yeah. So let me back up. So like, our, so my team specifically is, a, is a, they call it a multi-jurisdictional team. And so oh, it's made that too. Yeah. Yeah, it's, yep. it's seven cities. Each each city contributes X number of people. So each of the six of the seven cities for my team uh, commits six bodies to the team commander. And then one of the agencies commits two bodies plus a commander kind of fills both roles. Like you said, it's age goes out or the text goes out that we have a, you know, a barricade or whatever the case may be. And then whoever's available shows up. And so you get what you get on the day. Ideally, you end up with everybody, but a lot of times people are on vacation, people are hurt, people are, you know, whatever it is, they're on yeah. the primary duty assignment, they can't be there. So you have to have the ability to have everybody fill the roles that need to be filled. Mm. You can't be waiting for, you know, Sergeant Major Burke to show up because he's the only guy that knows how to run X piece of equipment. Everybody's got to be kind of a, a jack of all trades. That's and so huge. The, we do have team leaders on our team. We do have assistant team leaders on our team, but anybody on our team can fill those roles at any point. Really, it's just, it's a moniker. It doesn't mean anything. Rank is not on our team. There is no rank on our team. Anybody can fill those positions at any point. Annually, typically between 70 and 100 operations a year. Holy cow. Wow. I didn't yeah. realize that. That's amazing. Getting too much into it, you know, what's your kind of current thoughts on some of the stuff that's been going on, you know, the last year? It, it's been trying, man, for sure. It's made a lot of people reconsider the line of work they've chosen. But I look at it like anything. The pendulum's got to come back the other way at some point. Everything, you know, fluid seeks equal level at some point. It's a low point, but I think it'll swing back the other direction. We're kind of already starting to see that. Um, the defending of police and things like that are kind of going back the other direction now. I'm very, very fortunate, man. The The city that I work in, the community that I work with are very supportive of law enforcement. My administration is very supportive of us and the community is very supportive of us, which is even bigger than our administrators supporting us. It's not unregular for me to be out working patrol and have somebody come up and thank me for being a police officer, being there. I've been very, I guess, pretty shielded from it. Uh, we are a suburb of Seattle. At the same time, like our city department has gotten in front of a lot of that those things and so before any of the the stuff kind of really happened our department already had started with the community-based programs and the community-based policing and the outreach program i mean before those were even like key terms we had leaders in my department that saw the for you know the forethought to do those things and it's paid dividends and we will regularly i mean even on our, our facebook or our twitter or instagram for our department get a lot of positive feedback from the community 
And I think for me, that's really what has kept me motivated and a positive mindset was understanding that the people that are anti-law enforcement are the minority, man. They're, they're, they're a small percentage of the people that you work with or for. And we do work for the community, man. We do. And mm-hmm. we are we are there for the community. If we're not doing things properly, then we should be called on those things. Not to say that my department has it all figured out, but I think that we've got a pretty good idea. We're always looking for ways to change and improve. That's the thing that, again, I, I enjoy progressive organizations and I'm fortunate to be part of one. I think your statement uh, right towards the, t- the end there that we work for the community and if we're not doing things right, we need to be called on it. I think that alone and that understanding that not everybody's perfect, despite the fact that they might wear a uniform and be a police officer or be in the military, it doesn't automatically mean that they're going to do everything right. They still are a human. They have emotions and things happen. I'm not saying that anything that's happened is right or justified. Understanding that that one person's action doesn't speak for the population as a whole or the department as a whole. We will hold those people accountable. So I really appreciate you saying that. And I know that that's a a touchy subject, but I wanted people to hear it from you. because you're somebody that I respect, but you're also a police officer, and it's great to hear uh, those kind of comments from you. For I think for other police officers that may listen to your podcast, I mean, you have to look at the community that you serve. You're a you're in a servant position. I recently was in the last two years transferred to a different area of my city, which is a primarily Hispanic population. I didn't speak Spanish. Looking for ways to connect with the community. I learned Spanish. So for me to be able to communicate with my community that I'm serving, I need to learn to speak language. And I got tired of going to calls where I didn't understand or I couldn't communicate with them properly or trying to use language line on my cell phone. Use the language lines kind of takes with the human aspect of it. And yep. when, when you're talking to people, people don't call 911 on their good days. They don't call the police. Hey, man, I'm having a really good day. I want you to come by and celebrate this good day with me. They call you at low points in their life. And so just the communication piece and to be able to talk with your community and the people that you're working for and understand where they're coming from in their own language is, is huge. I think if more people took the time to do that, to understand the community that they truly serve versus looking at it as a job. Yes, it's a job. But at the same time, if you're living in that community and you are the person calling 911 and this police officer shows up and they can't communicate with you. They don't understand the situation that you're dealing with. It, it makes it very hard for them to be empathetic on either side of the coin. I take that stuff to heart, man. And I, I really do. Learning a language is not easy. The very minimal Spanish that I do know now after doing it for a year paid huge dividends for me when I show up to calls. It's awesome, man. I just wish that more people would take time to do that because you get paid very well as a police officer. You have a pretty easy job for the most part. You're only typically working you know, half the year, you have time in there to do those things. Get out, talk to shop owners, get out, talk to business owners, business employees, understand the people that are working in your districts. It all comes back around to help you out in the end. I'm not going to add anything to that, Eric. That was so well said. And I hope people take something from that, whether they're a police officer or not, because it, it ties into the whole connection piece where we just need to do a better job and use our time appropriately as human beings connecting with people, whether it's a job or not. I totally forgot about the the Spanish part. I actually saw you post something on that and I hit you up because I need to learn Spanish also for my job uh, for the same you know, reason, being able to uh, work with foreign partners and establish that connection on that level. I definitely appreciate you saying that. So what kind of advice would you give people that you know work full time, pursuing the things that you're you're pursuing at all times, new adventure, new hobby, 
whatever it might be, how do you, what would you tell them about time management and everything that kind of goes in between? I'm probably not the right person to ask that because when I pick <laughs> up a new hobby, I go in 110%. Yeah, um, you do. You, That's you why have I'm to find, to you. Yeah, you have to find balance, man. You really do. My hobbies right now, skydiving, jujitsu, my job, my family. Again, I'll go back to the fact that my wife's my best friend. I started skydiving and spending a lot of time at the drop zone. So she started skydiving so that she could spend time with me doing that. And now she's completely hooked as well. Jiu-Jitsu, same thing, fully immersed in the jiu-jitsu community. And my kids do jiu-jitsu. Actually, my kids started jiu-jitsu before my wife and I did. Um, my daughter's been doing it now for about six years. My son I've seen some videos four. where she's pretty amazing. She's oh, pretty man, she's savage. She's straight savage. We were going and watching jujitsu, and so we figured, man, spend more time with the kids, find a common language. It goes back to the communication piece, right? And so if I want to communicate with my kids about the hobbies and stuff that they're doing, by me doing it, I have a better understanding of what they're doing. My daughter's competing, and so understanding how her competitions work, and I have a better understanding by doing that. So I think finding balance is to – there's only so many hours in the day. Find what you get the most enjoyment out of and find a way to work that in and find balance. Life will tell you when you're out of balance eventually you'll come back to center. I'm very fortunate, I guess, in the sense that my family and we do things together as a family and it's very important to us and everything from we hunt as a family, we do jujitsu as a family. My daughter comes out to the drop zone and packs parachutes for money. We do everything as a family. I just, I value my time at home. And that was part of the reason why I laid down the holster thing is I value my time at home. So balancing those things when I'm home, I'm home. I'm not the guy that's going to go out and have beers with my coworkers at night and hang out with them outside of work when I'm home with my family. That's their time. I get plenty of time with my coworkers at work. Well, Eric, I definitely appreciate everything you're saying and a lot of fruit for people to pull uh, from everything you talked about. So as we kind of get to uh, close to an hour, you know, is there any question you want to ask me before we uh, kind of wrap this up and uh, I ask you kind of for the closing comments for the audience? What's your plans, man? <laughs> I know you. I know you fairly well, man. I figured it would be <laughs> something along those lines. You know, what's my plan? If the Army seems, sees that I'm adding value and they see that I'm relevant, I will continue to serve in the Army. I've done a podcast before and I saw how successful it was and I saw how it really reached across multiple domains. And that is why I decided uh, to start my own. And I didn't start my own for any other reason that I think not only myself, but people that I know for me, but I connect people. Um, I, I really do. And it's not me trying to be arrogant or anything else. I recognize somebody has a need. I had know somebody that can fill that need. And then I connect the individuals. And I think podcasts are a way to do that. And it's something that I'm excited about. And I'm excited to be able to do that in a digital realm. Anybody at any time, wherever they are, walking through life, driving through life, they can listen to. And then they can pull just a few things from. You know, I'm not arrogant that I think every podcast is going to be valuable to everybody. But maybe one thing, a series of them will. And maybe it'll be something something that somebody needs to hear and then they can make a change uh, from there. And I plan on doing that in conjunction with the Army. Uh, there'll be a point when I'll reach the expiration date and the Army will say, enough's enough. And then after that, I do not know what I'm going to do when, I'm a girl, when I grow up. <laughs> I still have not quite decided. <clears throat> but we'll figure it out. And I have an amazing wife and I have an amazing family. And I know they'll be behind me every step of the way. And we'll figure it all out together. So I really didn't answer your question. I kind of <laughs> No, you didn't. <laughs> uh, at the same time, I'm just living in the moment. You know, Eric, I appreciate the question. What drives you and makes you always in pursuit 
in all aspects of your life, be it from a hobby, business, SWAT, everything that you do, what keeps on pushing you forward? For me, I look at the fact that you get one life to live. I don't want to look back and regret that I wish I would have, or I just had this conversation with my son the other day. He is training currently to go in the military and that is his goal. He wants to go to the Ranger Regiment. Finding that intrinsic motivation, you don't have to have external stimulus to be motivated, um, is huge. And so for me, I told him I don't want to look back and be like, man, I, I should have trained harder. I've, I should have put more time in on the mats. I should have put more time in at the range. Because the time, typically when you look for those things, it, the time has passed. And so whether that's a situation at work where you don't have the ability to communicate or the ability to respond a certain way or a will a ability to communicate with your kids time is just time in the sense that it's is non-reversible in my world you call them windows of opportunity windows of vulnerability and so those windows of opportunity although they may represent themselves later down the road it'll never be the same if you miss an opportunity because you're not prepared then you've missed it and just no getting it back I want to live life to the fullest. I want to experience as much as I can while I'm here because I don't know what will happen tomorrow. Maybe that's a morbid way of looking at things, but that's just the reality of life. The job that I do, you see it every day. Somebody driving home from work, they get in a horrific car accident and that's it. And so I want to find a way to enjoy the things I can enjoy while I'm here. Honestly, man, um, Zach Carbo was one of those guys for me. I've been talking about starting skydiving for a long period of time. I remember having a conversation when I was at a pretty low point in my life a couple of years ago, just not feeling fulfilled and just kind of in a dark place. And I remember having a conversation on the phone and I think I'm going to start skydiving this year. And he laughed. He said, man, you've been saying that for 12 years since I started skydiving. You've been telling me that this is the year and you keep putting it off. He's like, either just shut up and do it or quit bringing it up. Mm. So I signed up for skydiving that night, man. There's, you can always put stuff off till tomorrow. And I guess we're kind of talking about this after the New Year's, right? New Year's resolutions kind of stuff. You have to have a plan and put that stuff into action. For me, what keeps me driving forward is the pursuit of life. You look around and you look at guys like yourself who have done just amazing things. You're average like I'm average. The difference is that you drive and you drive and you drive. You have to look at what's important, drive towards it, achieve it, find a new goal drive towards it, achieve it, and keep moving forward. Because at some point, this uh, trip around the earth is going to end for everybody. Absolutely. So make the most of it while you're here. Well, Eric, I really, really appreciate your time. And I appreciate the conversation and all the insight that you gave throughout and sharing your story with us, sharing some of your life. Uh, it's not always the easiest thing to do, but I think you did it masterfully. This is Always In Pursuit Podcast. Mike Burke signing off. <laughs>